Linux Out Loud is firing up our mics, connecting those headphones as we search for the community for themes to expound upon. We keep the banter friendly, the conversation somewhat on topic, and have fun doing it. This week, we're spouting off about five things that Linux needs to do to compete in the desktop market. Let's get into episode seven. Linux Out Loud is brought to you by DigitalOcean and Bitwarden. With me today is Wendy, the photo fungal of the Destination Linux Network, and Matt, the wandering goose, because he's not here. So Wendy, how are you? I'm doing pretty gosh dang good this week. I can't believe it's another week without Matt. We changed some things around because Matt's got a very turbulent schedule at the moment. And because of this turbulence, he wasn't able to make it again. Gosh dang it. So we do miss him. Once again, there will be no game of the week, but the last episode, he more than made up for his absence with his game of choice. So we'll kind of see what happens in episode eight. Well, he has a lot to make up for again this time too. Absolutely. At least I'm expecting that out of him. We all expect that out of him. Us and the entire (laughs) crew that listens. We got to spend our money on something, right? Right. Speaking of spending my money on something, I finally got my Spike Prime robot ordered with the expansion kit. Yay! Ooh, that sounds exciting. I am. I'm so excited. I can't wait for this to show up. Right now, this is spring break week from our co-ops. So it's not necessarily spring break for our umbrella school that we use, but it is for co-ops. So we don't have any co-ops this week. I have got our robot at home that we use for for competition and I'm going to be doing a little bit more playing with Python and coding it and figuring some different stuff out while I've got this one here and wait for mine to show up. I have enjoyed the few things I did with it and I actually used the code that I wrote on it as an example in my Python class. We were going through things. It was sometimes you need to import other libraries. And in the tutorial we're going through, they were importing a math library. And I'm like, oh, wait, I can show you another real world example of importing libraries when you're using this with robotics. Pulled up my code that I have written for Forvo, that's the name of the robot, and was showing all of the libraries that needed to be imported from the hub in order to get the motors and all of that fun stuff to work. So it's been really cool being able to see how using Python in our robotics club has added extra examples and learning experiences for the Python class that's going on inside the same co-op. For what it's worth, we are also on spring break with our co-op. So I don't know if maybe our co-ops talked ahead of time. Don't know. But hey, here we are. Must have. That's kind of nice, though. It is nice. I do appreciate having a week off. I feel like I needed it, even though it was just like Christmas was just the other day, I feel like. Right. But this Spike Education set, this looks awesome. It's a complete kit, right? So that you can learn and do the different lessons. It says it has 29 lessons wrapped up into this, 528 bricks, ages 10 plus. So I have one in my house that would qualify for this by the numbers. I'm sure my nine-year-old would do just fine with it too. Yeah, this looks really awesome. It is. And Lego Education has some different kits that are geared towards younger kids. This is definitely for a little bit older. It does have everything you need to get started. So it's got one of the larger motors, two of the smaller motors, a color sensor, a pressure sensor, and then it's got one more sensor on there. I can't remember what it is along with a bunch of different parts and pieces. And of course, your main hub, the brain of it all comes in this entire kit. I did go ahead and get the expansion pack 
So I would have exactly what our team has, which comes with an additional larger motor, an additional color sensor, lots, lots more parts, and then some additional bits and pieces, larger wheels, that kind of things. Yeah, this looks great. I mean, I want to buy this just for me. I mean, forget my kids. I mean, nicely. (laughs) This looks like fun for me. I'm just imagining the the fun things I could do with my existing Lego lunar setup, adding some motion and life to it besides a a static display. Yeah, absolutely. The wonderful thing about this is if you've already got Legos, you can use your existing Legos in creating things with this. I've seen some fantastic free classes on YouTube that's showing how to build these and use Python to make it work. One of the nice things about the Lego Education app, and I do have some not so nice things or some things that I wish they did different with the application, but one of the really nice things about the app is if you open it up, it gives you all these different options and I'll walk you through step by step in how to do specific things. So you don't have to have a secondary class from YouTube or a group in order to make this more functional, you can have everything you need with the kit and the app that goes with it itself and learn all kinds of wonderful things about robotics. I really want to get this. Like this is something I think is just super awesome. And I would love to get this and start doing this with my kids this summer, I think would be great. Absolutely. And then we can video call and share what our robots are doing. That's right. This is another reason why I want a 3D printer, because we need to build our own robot table to the specifications of the Lego League Challenge. So it's the right size. And then I want to build with Legos, different things that it needs to do and 3D print some objects for part of the game board that we're going to make ourselves. So there's so many things that you can do with the kids, with this Lego kit, your 3D printer. It could be a summer of code for the family. Yeah, then my robot can call your robot and then they can do their own podcast. It'll be great. Absolutely. (laughs) It's a plan. This last episode of Linux Saloon, great show, by the way, I was able to stop in for a little bit. You were talking about the Slackware experience this time. How did that conversation go? I knew going into Slackware that it was going to be a bit of a challenge because, well, Slackware. I wasn't wrong in my presupposition that things would be difficult, but where it was difficult actually surprised me. I was expecting more of it, the arch difficulty in installing Slackware. But I thought installation was very straightforward. It was easy to do. You could, you know, step by step your way through it. Not a problem. You know, I followed the documentation as I'm going through it. Not a big deal. I questioned some of their decisions on the order in which they tell you to go through the process. Like they tell you to use FDisk. And then so I went through the process of using FDisk to set up the partitions. It wasn't hard to do. It's just a little tedious because you have, it's, you know, it's all typey typey. It's not very graphic. The software doesn't help you along in the process, really. Then they tell you about CFDisk after you do it the hard way. I'm like, well, you know, maybe you should put CFDisk first. Maybe start off the area by telling you there are a couple options. You can go the easy mode, which is well easy for Slackware, CFDisk, and then use FDisk for you want to go you know, the real Slackware way or something along those lines. But you know, whatever, that's fine. And I think where I really got tripped up in Slackware was the documentation, it wasn't bad, but they would tell you what you have to do. They wouldn't tell you how to accomplish that. And I was really kind of put off by that because it's just like you add software by doing these steps, but they give you like a thousand foot view on what you have to do and not really tell you how to do that. So you got to really go through and dig and look for 
where the commands are specifically, or go on to old tech bloke has, has some good references, his setup of Slackware. And so you have to maybe go that route. If I could just get like Slackware set up and then use Flatpak, that would have made for a really good software experience, I think, because then it's very easy to keep your software installed. And in fact, I think Slackware with a Flatpak setup to me sounds like a good combination. But I did a lot of searching. I went through a lot of pages and I never actually found a step-by-step how to install Flatpak on Slackware. I guess it's out there because other people did it, but I didn't find it. And I was just a little dismayed by that. And so, you know, at the end of this, having enjoyed Slackware, I think it's neat because it is like the oldest Linux distribution out there. And I think it's almost like a rite of passage, like installing Arch. The Archway is kind of like a rite of passage in your Linux journey. So I'm glad I did it. I'm glad I tried Slackware. I definitely don't think it's for me. Some of their philosophies don't really jive with my own, but that's okay because, you know, they don't have to. Different Linux distributions for different people. That's awesome. The Slackware way of doing things is they don't solve dependencies for you. You have to solve them yourself because the idea is if the solver in Linux will always make a mistake or these different solvers will make a mistake and you'll have to fix those mistakes. And that's fine and dandy, but essentially it's always broken in Slackware and you have to figure out the solving on your own. So it's essentially doing that. I have to solve the problem every time you update. And that to me is very tedious. And so that really wouldn't work for me long-term on multiple machines. It wouldn't be sustainable for me personally because I wouldn't have the patience or desire to do that. So all that said, it's amazing how far Linux has come since the beginning. Slackware is kind of a look into the past with you know modern bits and pieces. I think Slackware is an interesting distribution. It's something that people should try just to try it to see you know, how to do things. I'm very glad to say that's not where Linux is as a whole anymore. Very cool experience. Certainly not an experience for me, but definitely an experience worth having. So in short, you're really glad you did it, but it's something that you don't plan to do ever again, or unless it comes back up on Linux Saloon here a few years later or whatnot. Well, I think the next Slackware that comes out, I'll try it again just because it was fun enough to try, but it's not fun enough to continue to use, if that makes any sense. Yeah, I absolutely get that. And I can definitely understand how installing packages, just getting the in packages installed that you want, if that's difficult, it kind of pushes someone away from that different distribution. But like you said, different distros solve different needs. There's this overall variety inside the community that we have. And Linux Saloon in these distro testing weeks gives you an option to see what is this thing that somebody finds just awesome that's the perfect fit for them and how does it work for me? What are things that I like about it? What are things that I don't like about it? And that's the fun of it. It's not that I'm trying other distributions because I'm not happy with OpenSUSE. That's not the case at all. It's fun to try other distributions because you want to see another way to answer the same problem. Yeah. You might learn something from that process. Or you might learn that the choice that you have is perfectly for you. And that's cool too. So that's why it's fun to do these things. And it's fun to try distributions you wouldn't normally try just to kick the tires, take it around the block, you know, see how it does on the highway, stuff like that. Yep. Slackware. Slackware was definitely an experience. Now you can join the Linux Saloon every Saturday night at 8 p.m. Eastern. We do different things besides test distributions. On the second will be another open mic night. Oh, awesome. Open mic nights are any subject. It can be in the discourse forum. It can be in any place out there that people find interesting. Anybody who joins has the floor to talk about whatever subject in Linux tech and open source they'd like to talk about. That's open mic night. And that'll be on the 2nd of April which should be a good time. The last open mic night, which was on the 5th of March, that went super well. I had tons of fun doing it, and I think everyone else did too. 
know, we're going to rotate these different activities to make sure we get all the different interests in Linux out there to be discussed. So if you want to join Open Mic Night, Saturday, the 2nd of April at 8 p.m. Eastern, feel free to join. You can be in the YouTube chat or you can join with your face or avatar on Zoom. This episode of Linux Out Loud is brought to you by DigitalOcean. Cloud computing can be, let's say, complex. But standing up reliable, affordable cloud infrastructure really doesn't have to be. At DigitalOcean, you can enjoy a comprehensive portfolio of compute, storage, database, and networking products that put your cloud infrastructure in capable hands so that you and your team can get back to doing what matters most building world-changing apps that grow your business. DigitalOcean also provides you with predictable pricing, robust product docs, and services that developers love. DigitalOcean helps teams regardless of size, whether you're a team of one or a team of 1,000 people. DigitalOcean helps your team grow with their simple, powerful cloud computing services. As a listener of Linux Out Loud and a member of the DLN community, you can get started for free. In fact, it's even better than free because DigitalOcean is giving you a $100 credit when you sign up using do.co slash tux2022. That's do.co slash tux2022. So get started with that free $100 credit on DigitalOcean's awesome cloud platform. Go to do.co slash tux2022. And we want to thank DigitalOcean for sponsoring this episode of Linux Out Loud. On Sunday, the 20th of March, Steve's very own, who is a co-host of mine on Linux Saloon, had this very interesting topic from an article on techrepublic.com. It was five things Linux needs to seriously compete in the desktop market that you probably never thought of. And Wendy, you caught a bit of this on Sunday, if I'm not mistaken. I did get to catch a little bit of this during the discussion, and I found it really, really interesting. So it's one of those things that I wanted to bring here. I'm really sorry that Matt isn't, because I know he would add some very colorful... I was just going to say colorful. (laughs) (laughs) Very colorful. Sometimes those things that get cut out. Oh, like the beep that ended up being last week. Yeah. The first thing that comes up on this list in this article. And if you've read this before, awesome. If you haven't, I actually think it's a pretty good read. Sometimes we pull up articles on here and we're like, oh my goodness, what in the world is going on? Is this an article just to get an article posted on some website? But this one, I think there's some really interesting points and the way they're laid out I think it's kind of funny. Pretty interesting read. But the first one is celebrity endorsements. Because think about all the things that are out there that have celebrity endorsements from cell phones. Cars. Apple. Like there's all these different products out there that have paid celebrity endorsements. But for Linux, right, we don't have this massive budget as a community be like, yeah, we want to hire you to endorse us. It would have to be a celebrity endorsement that's kind of a grassroots. They actually use Linux. They enjoy Linux and are wanting to be like, this is really cool. You guys should all do it too. But you can't have a commercial out there without having some sort of budget, even if the celebrity does it for free. It's harder to have it out there on mass media without a larger budget to do so. So it's one of those that, hmm, I like that idea. Who in 
the celebrity community, like movie celebrities, music celebrities, that kind of thing, actually uses Linux. I don't know of any. And then on top of that, like how would we go about actually putting out commercials or advertisements? And the funniest thing would be is if one of the Linux advertisements popped up on like a Microsoft website. That would be funny. I was thinking the guy that played Dwight Schrute on The Office, he'd be a great celebrity endorsement for Linux, I think. Mm. Yes. Yes, that would be a good one for sure. Bears, Beats, Battlestar Galactica, Arch Linux, you know, something <laughs> like that. Yeah, that would definitely make <laughs> for a very interesting commercial. And then they would have to be willing to not only do it for like TV ads. I don't know as many radio ads, maybe like internet radio. I don't know how many people listen to terrestrial radio anymore. I know I pretty much don't at all, but it would have to be willing to share it on their social media. So that's where not just one person, but multiple people would kind of have to be out there and saying, hey, this is pretty awesome in their personal stuff, just because budget wise, having the money to do a TV commercial and they are extremely expensive. You're not talking just the cost to air that commercial. You need someone to direct the commercial, all of the props, people that goes along with it. Like this is an extremely expensive endeavor. And I'm talking for in the case of someone who's done commercial photography only on the small scale. If you're talking commercial photography on a large scale, doing a photo shoot for a big name company, you can have lots and lots of people on the set, not just the photographer. You have, especially in food, you will have people that are just there to plate the food, like their job, what they make their living doing is food design and being able to plate that in a way that it's appealing. Now, you wouldn't necessarily need that for a Linux commercial, but you would need people willing to a have the equipment in order to film it, to do the post-processing, to have the people on set to make whatever ad you're doing work. And so that probably won't be feasible to have that run multiple times because then, of course, you have the cost of actually running that ad. So having celebrity endorsements that they're sharing it on their personal stuff, whatever media platforms that are, I love the idea of it. I just don't know how to make that happen or how it would even be feasible to do. You know, maybe we could take the Hannah Montana Linux as an angle and use that for promoting try and get actual endorsement by Hannah Montana. I know it's not a real name, but something like that. You know, we could tailor a Linux distribution for a specific celebrity and they could talk about that. I mean, you could, I'm just spitballing here. Now that wouldn't work for me at all. I would actually find the whole idea very repugnant. Right. I don't care about celebrity endorsements. You know, I'm sure somebody might be interested in trying a celebrity customized distribution, I suppose, or or something along those lines. Yeah, I definitely wouldn't. It wouldn't be my flavor, but maybe, and this is definitely trying to get Linux out to the more general widespread market and celebrity endorsements do seem to have a pretty big pull in that thing. But if you had a celebrity saying, hey, yeah, I use linux open source for all of this stuff that would be really cool we know a lot of movies are made with open source our very one and only jill does animation using open source teaches college classes around that and the use of it and what it's like inside the community so there's definitely not necessarily celebrities using it but people in the tech industry behind the movie industry using it 
So how do we break out from these people that are using it quietly to somebody's like, guess what? I use Linux and it can't be a podcast like this because fellow Linux loving nerds are the ones already listening to us. Right. Not the mass market. Computer celebrity advertising has happened in the past. Probably don't remember this. This was brought to my attention because of an LGR video about this Head Start computer from 1987 where King Kong Bundy, a WWF or WWE wrestler of the time, promoted this computer. I think it was an XT or AT based computer. So it's, you know, early. And that actually had some positive effects. So I think there is merit to say celebrity endorsement can actually be successful. But I would wonder if the desktop user experience isn't totally complete or whatever, like if it's not a A to Z complete desktop experience as far as, you know, yeah. app stores or whatever you have to make it easy to get applications. If that aspect isn't nice and clean and tidy, that form of advertising would just accelerate the death of something or the dislike for something. Yes. It's not a bad idea, I suppose, but it's got to be really positioned right. I mean, I, I would never say Linux is the easiest or the, I mean, we don't have all the applications. We don't have a lot of things. So you'd have to play to the strengths of what the distribution is, you know. Maybe you could get one of those celebrities that have like tinfoil hats, you know, someone who's a little bit crazy and have <laughs> them promote it. And that would probably make more sense because, you know, hey, I want to keep my stuff secure or privacy is a big issue. It's not very convenient, but my stuff is mine or something along those lines. That might work. Right. Then the average Joe consumer user who does care about those things, it would more likely have a good experience. So any kind of endorsement by celebrity or anything like that, something called the marketing bridge, we have to make sure, you know, only one piece of it's actual getting the word out there. The rest of it is how it all works, you know, on the back end. I, I can't remember all the pieces to it. When they actually go to use it. Right. So you don't fall into the river below you or whatever. The more we talk about this and celebrity endorsement, the more it goes from, hey, yeah, that's kind of a cool idea to more, this really isn't sustainable for what the open source of Linux community for the most part is trying to do. So unless Red Hat or Ubuntu was able to hire a celebrity for them to be able to have the financial back end to put that advertising out there, I just don't see how it would actually be a functional piece of moving the Linux desktop into the everyday computer user's line of sight. I will give one exception to that. The Steam Deck. Now, it wouldn't be desktop Linux necessarily, but it is running Plasma underneath it. You could do a celebrity endorsement for the Steam gaming system because that's an easy experience to sell. And that's another company that has a backing where they could help produce it and have the financial avenue of getting that advertising out there with the celebrity endorsement. Right. So some celebrity who's into gaming or whatever, whichever one, maybe Matt Damon, maybe he's too old now. I don't know. That would be an easier sell because the marketing bridge is complete on that. They can walk into already a library of games. All the reasons you would buy a Steam handheld console, you know, you could sell it on those merits. Installing new games is very easy to do, you know, or whatever. You can even go into the tinfoil headedness a little bit of the security of the device itself. So that would make sense because it's a complete product. Yeah, absolutely. And another step in that same direction would be the more media coverage. We just need to have Linux out there on all kinds of different media platforms, not just the podcast like this or some of the other shows on the Destination Linux Network. There's some other fantastic Linux podcasts out there that aren't necessarily on this network. 
but they really focus around those of us that are interested in this technology already, that are using it on a day-to-day basis, and they're not really geared towards the everyday user. Though when I first came to Linux, I did start with like a Linux newbie related type podcast. So that did kind of help pull me in, but that's what I was looking for. I was looking for a media outlet to help me get started in Linux itself. Whereas the article here is saying, we actually need some of these larger media sources to highlight desktop Linux. Now, how do you do that? It would be one, somebody else is an independent writer, maybe turning in articles to them if they'll publish it, or it would have to be somebody there inside of those organizations who was using Linux and tried to write paper on it. I almost feel like in a lot the same way of getting a Linux celebrity, getting more media coverage is standing there and trying to stop a jet. And there's no way like they're going to just fly over you or run over you. There's no stopping (laughs) it. You have to have somebody in the game on the ground level as part of those organizations to kind of make it happen. And then in these larger organizations, they have to have okays on the papers, the stories that they're writing. So is it one of those things that There are writers there that want to write about desktop Linux and they're being told, nope, our audience won't actually like it. I don't know. How do you get your foot in the door there? Yeah, the audience would have to care. It goes back to what is it you're trying to sell? What do you want people to know about whatever device it is? Yeah, exactly. You're not going to sell a box of meat to a vegan because they're not going to eat that. If someone doesn't care about open source, can't sell it on open source because nobody cares about that really for the most part. People who know care about it, but people who don't know or don't understand the value of it don't care about that. So it's going to have to be something that you explain the importance that you speak to their specific needs. And and I think that's the issue with media coverage. What are you going to tell them? How are you going to position your statement so that people actually care? That's the challenge right there. Yeah. How is the average person going to care that they walk into their local computer store and ask the person that's working there, these are the things I do with it, which one is the best for me, buy that one, and that's what they have. Those are the people that you're kind of, in a way, targeting in order to get Linux out to the mass market. And these next couple of things kind of go right along with the things that we've been talking about, having a cohesive marketing strategy, having a singular message, but what is that message? What is the point that you're hitting in order to get this into the mass market. And then like what you're saying, if you have a singular message, if all the distributions are getting together and saying, this is what our message is, how are you supporting people with that message? Once they go and install this distribution, whether they buy a computer that has it installed or go to their personal tech guru and have it installed, however that's done, then how is the the singular message being supported afterwards. So it's like you pointed out, it's not enough just to say, hey, we've got Linux. This is awesome. This is our message. Then you have a lot of people coming in with problems as they're installing the system or as they're using the system. What do you say to the person for number four, make a deal with the devil who has come in, bought this laptop from a big box store They get home with it, and now they've got a problem. Are there people at the big box store that can support them? 
Is there additional helplines or whatnot that can support these people with the desktop Linux? I love the idea of having more market share for Linux, but it's not just a one and done deal, right? When you're bringing non-technical people into Linux, then you have a lot more problems you're dealing with, and it's not necessarily faults of their own. Yes, some of us need to read the manual. Sometimes we need to look through the forms and find the right answer, but there are people in my life that are not technical people, and explaining them how to do it doesn't necessarily make a difference just because their brain doesn't work that way. That's not the way they think. They just need to use this appliance for a thing and get it done and it's not working so just fix it so I can get this done. And those are some of the people that mass marketing Linux would bring into it and you have to have a larger infrastructure somewhere to deal with that influx. I know the community is awesome. We've talked about how amazing the community is that we have here. I have expanded some of the community that I'm a part of with chats that I've been on on Jitsi. And I love it. I love it so much and the help that I get from them. But there's just a different level of working through problems that comes with the mass market that Windows has to deal with and Mac has to deal with and Google has to deal with with Android and Windows Phone tried to deal with and eventually it just didn't work for them on multiple different levels. So... I do like the idea of, yeah, walking into school and everybody's using Linux. Hey, guess what? We got a new lab full of Linux computers. Maybe they're not new computers, but they're new to us computers. And now they're all running Linux. Mm -hmm. I love this idea. But then I start thinking about the real world applications of then how do you make it work? Am I stepping off like too far here? No, I think you're right. The support aspect is huge and having a corporate backing for that support is very helpful. And that would be the hard thing is is training a lot of people to do that support. In some ways, I almost think like the small town corner computer store guy is probably the one that's best suited for such an endeavor. You know, someone who sells computers at a local level, he can support those people pretty well, very likely. I mean, but it would obviously be time consuming, but also, you know, hooking them up with community to help them out. It almost seems like you have to have a distribution that has some padded guardrails to it. Yes. Something like an elementary, although maybe not elementary, but something like that. In my mind, I'm thinking a quality rolling distribution so the core of the operating system keeps updated you know, on its own right. for the person or whatever. And then use something like Flatpak on top of it so that that's like your padded guardrail there. You can install a Flatpak and for the most part, you're not going to have any issues. But you use something like, assume you can tune Discover or GNOME software well enough that would be a fine interface for a new user just to get along with the operating system. It wouldn't necessarily cut them off from the cool parts of Linux where you can do all these you know, nifty things in the underpinnings of it, but it would just kind of give them a nice padded guardrail so that they could explore and have fun with the operating system without the consequences of breaking it because you want to eliminate some of those consequences. And Android and iOS are by far, are not anywhere close to being a perfect user experience by any means. They have their problems too. And Linux has its problems, but the question is, are the problems that Linux would have with a, you know, a nice padded environment, would that be palatable enough in that regard? I think it definitely changes it. And I feel elementary OS kind of fits that, like you were bringing up. It's kind of one of those padded, not necessarily wall gardens, but it's a distribution that you can hand to someone that doesn't have any Linux experience. They're not interested in learning about Linux itself, they are not software people. They're not hardware people. As Matt would say, a 
utility, a piece of hardware. This is just an everyday thing that I need to do and help them not accidentally break it. And at the same Mm -hmm. time, one of the things I know we're going to run into is that software availability issue. And you're going to get people, and I'm sure this happens already with some of the larger operating systems, but it would definitely be an issue for new people coming to Linux. And let's say you have the same person who's bought this laptop, desktop, running, let's say, Ubuntu, because it's a big name, running Ubuntu that they got from the big box store, they get it home, and now they've got the CD that they want to install that has some past version of Windows Office or whatever that's on it. Now they're calling the customer support line saying, why can't I get this disk to install? And if the big box store doesn't have something that can handle, no, you can't use that application because this is a different operating system that won't run that one or whether it's your help staff that doesn't have that knowledge, you have a bad customer experience because they're like, well, this is the computer they recommended. Why can't I get my software to work? I just, I don't see it at our current state being a bonus to mass market Linux. Not saying, like I said, that I don't want everybody to use it because it's my absolute favorite. But at the same time, there's so many hurdles that come to having mass adoption. So I just repeated myself over again, but... Yeah, I agree. I think something that might be worthwhile too, because Linux is in and of itself generally a community-driven operating system. I'm straying from the article here a little bit, but it almost seems like more of a grassroots or local, starting a Linux users group, like in your town or something, where you just meet you know, once a month at a library or something like that, and just like let people bring in their computers and have the problems and so forth. You have to kind of lay down the rules of, hey, you know, this is a community. We'll help right. you install this we can support you or whatever. And that might work. Maybe. I don't know. I don't think, almost seems like you have to like look to your neighbor to get good support with Linux as opposed to just looking at some nameless, faceless corporation and the people within it to provide that support. Because I don't think you you just don't get good support at all from nameless, faceless corporations. Yes. Because Linux is not Windows. Windows is not Linux. Linux is not Mac. Mac is not Linux. So it's a different experience I don't think it's a bad experience, obviously. I mean, I use it all the time, but it is a different experience. I think it needs to concentrate on the aspects of it that make it fun and enjoyable and just keep going with that. I don't know if there is this new user-friendly distribution that can ever really exist. I mean, maybe. Maybe, I don't know. I think Chromebook is probably the closest right now, but there could be something like that or cloud-ready, whatever, that might be a solution. But, you know, the full-on Linux... It's like having a whole giant switchboard of features and functions in front of you. And not everyone can handle that. Maybe it has to be made more digestible. I don't know. I think you summed up exactly what I was trying to say and what I was rambling trying to get to. That it's a different experience. And my biggest fear in pushing it to the mass market using some of these suggestions would be people not understanding that it's a different experience You don't buy a Mac thinking that you're getting Windows, but I feel, especially with a lot of these reviews that we've seen there all over YouTube about that I'm trying Linux for the first time, and there isn't a distinction that I'm trying something new. There isn't a distinction that this is something different, and so they go into it, well, I hate this because it doesn't work exactly like Windows, and I just feel like we'd end up with a bad mass market campaign with those 
What's the word I'm looking for? Those experiences, reviews? Yes, exactly. Yeah, I agree. I think part of the problem too is when you put Linux on a machine, typically has that Windows meta key. And I think that maybe that's part of the problem. Yeah. You don't have a little penguin or a Geeko, an OpenSUSE Geeko or something there that says, hi, I'm not Windows. I think that's part of the problem. Maybe. I don't know. I'm grasping at straws here. But for some people, I know it's actually the transition has gone great. There's a, an 80-something-year-old lady that I know that she runs OpenSUSE Linux every day. And unless she does something kind of like screw with it, it basically runs very well for her, very reliably. It does what she wants. She just wants to watch YouTube videos on her TV. And so she plugs a laptop in and, and Plasma handles that all beautifully. Sometimes she'll hit a key combination that like shuts off the external screen or something. And then it's a problem. But she has more or less worked her way through those problems. And then she sends me a Telegram message. She's not a digital native, but she's become very comfortable with technology at 80-something years old. So if she can do it, I think pretty much anybody can do it because she has a desire. Yeah, you're right. And I think that's the big thing. You have to want to learn is the issue. You have to want to do something that's a little bit different. Yeah, I totally agree. And my in-laws use Linux every single day on the desktop computer that they have at home. But sometimes I do get those calls like, we tried to install Google Earth. Why won't it work? And that's one of those, well, you can't necessarily install it from the website. It has to be installed like this. As long as you have people that understand that it's different and are willing to maybe not necessarily learn all the ins and outs, but are comfortable with the features and functions that Linux has, I think it's fantastic. And non-technical people can use it. I have mentioned before that I gave my dad a laptop, a Surface device that's running elementary. I haven't heard him complain about it. So as far as I know, everything is running just fine on it. He's able to use it as normal. And I'm sure if he had any issues, then he'd give me a call. Like when he got home, he was having a hard time getting the Wi-Fi to work. And I know I can talk my dad through getting through some of those things. It's not that the average person can't use it. I don't think that Linux really is that hard to use. Like I said before, I'm more worried about the person who buys the Linux laptop and is like, well, gosh dang it, it's not exactly like what I had, so it's trash. Right, and that's the problem. Mm -hmm. It's managing the expectations is huge. Yes, and how do you make a mass market campaign that manages expectations but also explains how fantastic Linux actually is and at the same time have the support that they need for a mass market adoption? So for me, I'm going to say let's forego mass market for now. Stick with the way we're doing it because Linux is growing. We do have amazing communities. We do have average everyday people that are using Linux that aren't technical and deep diving into their hardware, their software. It's okay. I think we're doing all right. I know. The endorsement would be like this. Hey, this is Linux. It's not easy to use. In fact, it's downright difficult. But good golly, keeps me safe. So maybe you should try it. No, no, don't try it. Never mind. Go away. <laughs> Go try something else. I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> and then you have the, the reverse psychology, like, oh, this must be good. It does this for me. You're telling me not to use it. Maybe I should try it. Well, I'm definitely one of those people that if it's banned, <laughs> I'm like, well, maybe I should go check it out. I know that's why I read Graves of Wrath. We were doing another book with the kids at my Tuesday co-op, and it had mentioned that that book was being banned when it first came out. And I'm like, that's it. I got to go read this book. And I did. <laughs> yeah, there's a certain kind of person that would go after that. And that might be an okay new Linux user. If you tell them not to do it and they do it, that's perfect. <laughs> 
Because then they have to make it work because you told them they shouldn't. So they got to show you wrong by making it work. Right, exactly. I mean, when someone said, no, we shouldn't do Slackware. It's, that's too hard. Well, now I want to use it because you just told me not to do it. And I'm, I'm definitely going to use it. Yes, exactly. We are birds of a feather, aren't we? Yeah, that's how we do a podcast. <laughs> So tell us what you think. Should Linux do some different tactics to appeal to the mass market? Is appealing to the mass market even a good idea? You can comment below or go to the discourse forum or, you know, send us a, an email by going to dlnextend.com contact. Give us your opinion, your take, what Linux should do to increase its market share. This episode of Linux LR is brought to you by Bitwarden. One thing we can do to protect ourselves is having unique passwords for every online account that we have. I've been using Bitwarden for a while now to do just that. It not only helps me keep track of the many passwords I now have, it includes a random password generator, you can set the length of special characters, and so much more. But here, it's open source, receives third-party security auditing, and you can get started for free by going to bitwarden.com DLN. Want some of their premium features like one gigabyte of file storage, vault health reports, or just support the project? It starts for only $10 a year. Jump over to bitwarden.com DLN to get started with your free account now. Wendy, I understand that you got some great feedback on our episode number five of Linux Out Loud on Educated Linux. What was it specifically that really jumped out at you? I had asked for help from the community, anybody who had worked with groups of kids and whatnot in getting some of these different functions to work. And what I'm talking about was in that episode, I would love it if our FLL team, the first Lego League team, could use Git in order to share their code, have iterations of it, learn how that process works. And Elray in the discourse form wrote me this super awesome piece talking about how his wife uses it for girls who code. They created some starter videos for Git that they've shared. They're out there that everybody can use. These look awesome. I haven't gotten to go through all of the videos myself but some fantastic information. And it says that they don't go into deep details, but mainly covers high level with step-by-step instructions so people can get familiar with how to use it. Thank you so much for sharing your experience and using this with a group of people who are just getting started in this, how your process works and what you have going on with this infrastructure. I absolutely love it. I will be sharing this with my mentor team and the kids. Git feels like more of an option. I know in going through all of this, I was getting really, really overwhelmed with all the steps and processes that needed to get done this summer in order to make it feel like it'll be a successful year to be able to support the kids in their journey and their ability to learn for me to have the knowledge to help them. And I feel like you really helped solve that problem for me because this is a resource that's ready to go, that it's laid out in a way that's meant for people that are using it for the first time. So thank you so much. I think it was an awesome response for you because I think it'd be helpful for me too. I use Git, but not a lot. I barely know how to use it, essentially. I don't have enough experience with it. So this might be a good one to help me understand a little bit better because some of it's just a little bit ambiguous to me. Like I don't have a good workflow. I feel it's very clunky, but people use it all the time because it's efficient. So obviously I'm not grasping something. So I'm going to watch this 
see if it can improve my usage of it as well. I store some things on Git that I've worked on, like my OpenSUSE plasma style and color scheme. For me, anytime I make any changes to it, I upload it to Git and it just feels clunky to me. But if I can learn to use it better, that would just be fantastic. Maybe I'll use it more often. I don't know. I've used it before. It's been quite a while since I've actually submitted anything through Git. And there's parts of it that I just need to relearn. I think it's one of those things that if you're not using it on a regular basis, you can forget some of those commands and pushing, pulling things. I know in the past and trying to use it before that there's all these different deals with permissions, who has access to push this to this directory and whatnot. So setting that up properly from the beginning, there is nothing more frustrating then you've been working on this change and then you try to submit it and it won't work. And then you talk with other people in your team and you're like all day, nope, I've tried this, I tried that, I can't get it to work. And in the end, it's not that you weren't submitting it correctly. It was that you didn't have permission to submit to that directory. And you're like, oh my gosh, I spent all day and this didn't work. <laughs> like so incredibly frustrating. And I don't want that for me and I don't want that for the kids. I want it to be just as efficient as possible. I know there'll be problems. Like there's always problems. I don't think that we can do it without some sort of issue. But this is a fantastic way to help us get started and a resource that I can ask questions. How does this working? How do you handle some of these different things that come up while using it with your group of people in your organization or teams? Heck yeah. Yeah, that's beautiful. I agree that you don't want to make it so frustrating for the kids that they lose interest. The strategy we use in the schooling that I use, the curriculum, is always like easy plus one. Whatever's easy for them, then you add just one layer of difficulty. You don't add multiple layers of difficulty. You get the basics down for, let's say, coding or whatever, and then they know how to save it. And then you add one thing, which is just push it up to GitHub or whatever, instead of just opening their code that they did work on, do a pull and get the latest, I think pull is that's the right term, and then get the latest changes that someone else might have submitted, and then you work on it again. So little things like that can be very beneficial, but just, you know, stepping it in little by little by little, and then you have this very complex tapestry of skills and ideas that they can operate within. Absolutely. I love that saying. I'm going to steal that one. Easy plus one? Yes. Yeah, it's a good one. Our team uses the KISS method, but they say it in a way that that I never used before. Keep it super simple. <laughs> That's not the way I heard That's it when I, I first <laughs> learned of the KISS method. Yeah. But our team uses the KISS method and the way they say it out of acronym is keep it super simple. So we want to build our robot in a way that's simple to manage. We want to write our code in a way that's simple, not, not complicated, that all of our attachments don't have to be super complicated what is the thing that's going to work the best, least likely to break? And I want their experience with GitHub to be the exact same. I want it to be that easy plus one where they're being challenged, but they're not being challenged so much that it's like, that's it. I give up. I'm too frustrated. I think that's a good strategy. You can maybe uh, combine the two. So you can say kiss plus one, although that might sound not right. <laughs> I don't know. Um <laughs> but easy plus one works for me. Kiss plus one. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. <laughs> That's an oh boy. Your C64, C64 imposter is not the only love of your life. You love that vintage tech 
and all of the things that go with it. It sounds like you have another build-in process, but now we're going to a Commodore 1541. How is that going? It's going very well. So what the 1541 is, the Commodore 1541, it was a five and a quarter floppy drive for the Commodore 64. What I'm doing is I'm building a Commodore 1541 imposter. What that is in relation to my Commodore 64 imposter is that I don't have all the ports and all the different little things that I need to have a nice, clean workflow for my computer. So when I have to like access a card reader, I got this stupid little hub thing that I have to like fiddle around with in the back of the computer. And it just, it's not fun, you know, to have to fiddle around behind the computer. There are no ports in the front of it because there are no ports in the front of any Commodore 64. And where there would be like joystick ports on a Commodore 64, I have a vent there to suck air in to keep my computer cool. So what I'm doing is I'm building a companion device, this Commodore 1541 imposter, and instead of having a five and a quarter floppy in it, it's going to have USB, USB 3, and memory cards that you can pop in it to access. It'll match then the computer, it'll be just like kind of right underneath it on the way I have my desk set up, be just below it. And I can very easily then pop in a USB drive, you know, if I have to flash something or pop a memory card if I have to transfer some files off like my camera or put some files on a card to put on my 3D printer or whatever I'm doing or maybe imaging a card for a Raspberry Pi, it'll be really convenient because I'll have it a separate device. So that device I'll be able to plug directly into through USB 3 into my computer and everything will be right there. I won't go into all the features that I'm trying to pack in it. At the minimum, it's going to be basically a USB hub and a memory card reader. And I'm also planning to put in a two terabyte storage drive inside that as well. So not only will it be access to a bunch of IO, but it'll also be additional storage, you know, for backup or whatever I want to do just you know, to, to offload my main drive so I can keep that cleared out. This really is the perfect evolution of your C64 imposter. I think you said that you're 3D printing the case for this, right? Well, I'm 3D printing components for the interior of it as brackets to hold the different connections in the back and in the front. I need to be able to screw those things down safely so that if I stick in a memory card, the whole front doesn't like collapse inside the case. Right, exactly. To make it a nice, clean user experience for me. Also, I'm going to put a switch on the back of it too, so I can turn it on and off like I would a Commodore 1541 as well. So, you know, little things like that I'm, I'm trying to put into it. And then all the designs that I make for this, I will put on Thingiverse, I'll release for free so people can use it and, you know, re-spin it for themselves. Or, you know, they may not care at all, but just look at it and say, oh, he did that. The trick here is I'm designing it so that I can screw it into the existing case without doing any damage to the case. So I'll be using the same screw threads and pitches and everything what the case had originally for this build. So it could be technically completely reversible. You could turn it back into a floppy drive and no one would be the wiser. I can't wait to see pictures of it. I know that this is a work in progress, but I would love to see it when it's all done, especially with your C64 imposter. You're going to have to share some pictures and some build pictures along the way as you're working on it, the trial and error, because... It doesn't always work right the first time. This is a new adventure in the build. And I've got to know, you've got to keep us updated as you're going through it, how it's going, what's worked, what's not worked. And then also share your final instructions. Absolutely. I will be making a video on it. I've been recording the process, so I will share that. And I will share a picture of the, the mess that it is right now because I think that's funny. And then that can be shared for the podcast. Now it's your turn to toss in your two cents on today's topics. Hit the discourse forum, drop us a line under the video, or on the contact form by visiting dlnextend.com contact. If you'd like to hang out with us on our preferred social media, see the links at the bottom of the show description. Find other great shows on the network like Hardware Addicts, GameSphere, Linux Saloon, and more at destinationlinux.network. 
Show off your love for your favorite podcasts and shows by visiting the DLN merch store. Grab yourself some awesome swag like the gamer-centric I Pause My Game to Be Here shirt. As always, we thank you for joining us. We'll be back next week with another awesome episode of Linux Out Loud. Until then, keep the banter friendly, conversation somewhat on topic, and have fun doing it. 